What we say matters, and how we say what we say, what we actually do matters all the more. Consider the following phrase, let's eat, Grandma. I'll consider those same words differently emphasized. Let's eat, Grandma. (laughs) Now, I know this joke looks differently on people of a certain age, nonetheless, Placing the emphasis on the wrong syllable can have a dramatic impact on the meaning of our words. Ada, my daughter, is in France. She is there with a friend from college and Hannah who was expressing her excitement about being in France and living with her host family, wrote in an email to them, je suis excité. Without realizing it, she had said to her host family that she was aroused at the thought of meeting them. The phrase she was looking for was something like jihad or I can't wait. And while her host family was sure to have gotten the sentiment, it was a little more sexually charged than she had intended. What we say matters. And what we do, how we emphasize our words with our actions, grounds our speech in such ways that reveals the intent of our hearts. This is the dynamic at play between Jesus and the Pharisees in our reading from Matthew's gospel. The priests and elders approach Jesus questioning where he gets the nerve to say and do all the things that he says, all the things that he does. By what power do you do these things? And who gave you this power, they ask. Now, you may recall that the chief priests and elders are pretty ticked off with Jesus. He has recently wandered onto the scene, flipping tables over in the temple courts, driving away the money changers, and perhaps my favorite illustration of all, Jesus is taking out the chairs from under the money changers and throwing them off to the side. I have this wonderful image in my mind of a radical, long-haired rabbi dumping people's butts onto the pavement with their chair in his hand saying, what are you doing? Does this look like prayer to you? So the keepers of the status quo come and ask Jesus, who do you think you are? What gives you the right to say and do these things? And Jesus, as if they've invited him to play a game, says in reply, so you want to know by what power I do these things? Riddle me this and I'll tell you. John's baptism, where did it come from? From heaven or from men? Jesus had stumped the priests and scribes before. And they feared that whatever came out of their mouths might elicit doubt and uncertainty regarding their status among their fellow Jews. Fearing the crowd, they respond, we don't know. Notice the approval seeking of the temple priests and elders. Matthew does not describe a people trying to be true to God or even true to their own heart. Rather, we see a people seeking the favor of the mob. What Jesus was inviting them to is a life beyond self-consciousness into an awareness deep 
within the heart of each person that aligns with the purposes of God. You see, the only difference between the tax collectors and the money changers is that one served the emperor and the other the temple priest. Each profit off of God's people. Yet it is the tax collector who proves to be the honest sinner, one who did not deceive himself into believing that he is in alignment with God. I also want to point out that our translation of this passage in Matthew's gospel doesn't quite capture the invitation Jesus is making. Jesus tells the priests that they did not receive the witness of the tax collectors and prostitutes going to John. And our translation reads, you did not change your mind. Metamelatheta, translated here, change your mind, actually refers to a deep feeling within. We might translate it as change your hearts, yet even this doesn't quite do it justice. In context met with the emotional charge of this word, Jesus says to them, you did not feel regret. You did not feel remorse. You did not drop into your heart and let yourself feel what the prostitutes and tax collectors were feeling. Those who came to the River Jordan did so because John's invitation connected with a deep longing in their hearts. John was telling the people that they are more than their self-interest, more than their mistakes, more than their shame or guilt. John was preaching good news that every person is the beloved of God, not the perfect, not the talented, not the wealthy, not the sinless, not the well-educated. Beloved is a category that God puts all of us in. It may be the only category known to God. And Jesus says to the priests and elders, you were witnesses. You saw their transformation, yet you refused to feel. You rejected your heart's conversion. What we find time and time again throughout the New Testament is that it's not so much what we believe about Jesus that matters the pervading question on our lives is whether we are becoming like Jesus. Are we opening ourselves to feel the hunger and thirst of those around us? Do we experience the sadness of those who mourn? Do we know the compassion of Jesus deep in our bones where the pain and suffering of others is no longer somewhere out here? where there's no risk of becoming vulnerable? Are we tuned enough to the frequency of Jesus that the tears of another moves us to tears, that the homelessness, the unemployment, the pain, the suffering or addiction of another moves us to name our own contribution to the pain and suffering in this world so that we might align and be with those who suffer. Be with them in meaningful ways that respect the dignity of every human being, that respects the divine energy and light within each of us. 
I was in a workshop this past weekend in North Carolina. I didn't exactly know what to expect from the training. I simply knew that it would prove beneficial for my life as a priest. It would be hard to capture the weekend in a nutshell, but it was basically an intense training on becoming vulnerable. It's taken me a long time to recognize how I've been living in my head for most of my adult life. There's so many interesting things going on up here that I never realized how much I needed to drop down into my heart. I didn't always realize that I need to feel what I know intellectually so that I can tap into the real truth and understanding, the real wisdom of my body. Without getting into too much detail, I had to talk about deeply personal matters, all of my challenges, my weaknesses, strengths, and best of all, all of my self-deceiving tendencies. Each of us who gathered for the conference named all of our vulnerable parts while standing in front of the whole group. To make matters worse, the two facilitators then proceeded to interrogate us right in front of everyone else, asking us to further describe our stories, questioning the accuracy of our descriptions. It wasn't nearly as much fun as it sounds. (laughs) If I'm being honest, it was a bit like being emotionally filleted in front of a crowd. Like many of us, I grew up in a Christian home where feelings were things that come upon us when we're not prayerful or faithful enough. We hear words in scripture that say, do not let the sun go down on your anger, or if there is anger in your heart, you are liable for judgment. I've taken these words seriously, suppressing a great deal of anger over the years in my valiant efforts to be a calm and steady presence for those who can't seem to hold or control their temper. You know, kind of like Jesus, who seems to have a habit of flipping over tables and throwing chairs around. I think it's why we invented pews in the church and screwed them to the floor, just in case Jesus ever walked in the door. While I've been working on my own feeling my feelings for a while now, it became clear to me over the weekend that I still have a long way to go, perhaps a lifetime. The pattern of suppression I receive from the wider culture, my upbringing in the South, my family, and my own contribution to it all will not be undone in a day, nor simply by changing my mind. It takes practice. I have to be deeply intentional. I have to be open to seeing things I don't want to see, what I can't yet see. I have to attend more deeply to what I'm actually doing, not just what I say I'm doing or what I think I'm doing. If I want to become one with love, I have to attend to love in all things in a loving way. And while many have claimed that love is not a feeling, that is not what Jesus has to say. Love is very much a feeling, even if it's not only a feeling. To feel love, to experience the compassionate love of Jesus, 
demands of us habits and practices of truthful speech and faithful movement, remembering that it is from our disposition, a disposition inscribed on us by our environment, our families, our habits. It is from this disposition that we perceive, that we feel, which sometimes deceives us. The temple elite, having inscribed on their bodies the well-worn patterns of judgment, were living in their heads and not from their hearts. Their lives were tuned to a different frequency than that of love. I know this pattern in my own life more than I care to admit. I have a lot of compassion for the establishment of Jesus' day. The priests and elders had unwittingly institutionalized tax collecting and prostitution in the temple, labeling it religion, calling it devotion, deceiving themselves and others into believing they were being faithful. And the temptation for us who call ourselves followers of Jesus is the temptation to not identify with the establishment, not to notice our own pharisaical tendencies born out of our own trauma or regret, which we suppress in the name of righteousness. We talk a good game, a game we ourselves did not invent, and it's a game we can stop playing Are we inviting people, are we inviting grandma to dinner? Or are we devouring others with our judgment? If our impulse is judgment and scrutiny, it does not mean that we need to suppress our anger and frustration. This will only cause more harm. It means we need to harness our anger, harness our frustration, so to help us see what we may be holding on to, something in us we're not letting God forgive. Anger and frustration can become an unexpected call to prayer. God will not force our transformation. God is not so insecure and controlling as we are. Nevertheless, As soon as we release the Spirit into every chamber of our hearts, become honest with ourselves, honest with God, honest with each other, that is when we are aligned, when what we say with our lips is confessed with our lives and all for the sake of love. Amen.